So just before we started <clears throat> uh, the, re- the prayer, we had about 50 kids or so, 60, leave uh, the worship service. It's one of my favorite times. Um, I love to see my children when they were littler, and Claire still goes to Club 412 sometimes, and to see our children go back and to realize that they're excited about learning about Jesus. You know, Jesus welcomed the little children to himself. Jesus loved the little children, but the disciples did not. I mean, the disciples were not the folks that you wanted to be babysitting for your kids. Apparently, the disciples had like no time for children. They were like, this is Jesus. He's the king. He's super important, and he's got no time for the kids. But Jesus kept telling them over and over throughout his ministry. He actually rebuked them and said, don't you dare keep the little infants, in this case it says, even the infants, away from me. You know, most societies don't value children highly enough. Um, that's why child abuse rates are so high, and we're even learning that to be the case in the church, uh, in many cases in the church. And it's something that we grapple with in our own society and worldwide. It's just a reality that the children are not loved very well at all. But Jesus had a totally different way of looking at children. He wanted the children to be around him. He welcomed them to himself. Now, why? Why did Jesus want this? I think it's because it was so refreshing for Jesus to be around human beings who actually understood how much they needed him. Finally, here's some humans that I've created that get how much they need me. There's no pretense. There's no achievement. There's no performance. They just know that they need me and they come to me. And Jesus found the children so refreshing. They came to him to receive mercy, not to show him their merits. And Jesus loved this about kids. Think about an infant. We were just talking about, Claire was praying for little James Clark. Um, James is doing better. Actually, I got a text this morning, which is great. We need to keep praying for them. He's still in the hospital. But there's there's no pretense. James knows he needs help. Uh, He's not even, he he just knows he does. This is where he's at in life. He knows he needs help. And and, and Emmy and Jake will do anything to help him right now, and so will the doctors. And that's that's how Jesus feels about us. He knows that we need him tremendously. He knows that we need to understand how deeply and desperately we need him. Infants get this. They cry out if they need their mom. They cry out if they need their diaper change. They just do it. And as kids get older, they still know that they need help. I mean, I remember my kids were growing up, used to drive me crazy. It was like, Dad, can I have some milk? And if I don't respond like immediately, it's like, Dad, can I have some milk? Milk, 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 milk. And you're like, okay, 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 milk, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, and then, you know, it's Dad, you know, uh, can I have a friend over? A little bit older. Can I have a friend over? Friend over, friend over, friend over, friend over, friend over. And finally, you're like, yes, you can have a friend over. Let's figure this out. Let's make sure we can have a friend over. I remember one time when Claire, my youngest child, was uh, about four years old. She was on the fourth stair in my house. You just walk by the staircase, kind of comes down the middle of the house. I was walking to the kitchen, and out of the corner of my eye, like, she times it to where she knows I'm walking by from the fourth stair, and she just jumps. And I pull off one of those moments that you feel like if they could capture this parenting moment, you could win, like, some sort of a medal or a trophy. Like, somehow I responded and immediately, like, moved over and caught her and she had no doubt you know in her mind dad's there I'm gonna jump this makes sense uh because I just know dad's gonna catch me I mean there's probably maybe a 50 percent chance of that working out the way that it did but 
In her mind, it was 100% that I was going to catch her. But we, in that way, need to exercise trust in our Lord Jesus, that he will always actually catch us when we depend on him. Jesus, in this section, this is included for us in Luke, Jesus is, is showing us his interaction with children so that we would learn something from him. And he makes a, a pregnant statement at the end. He says, if you will not receive me like these little children receive me, then you will have no part in the kingdom of God. It's like, what? Okay, there, maybe there's something I need to learn here from the little children and their trust and their dependence on Jesus. And then, so he sets up, there's like the introduction with the children And then he gives us a couple of vignettes, two different kinds of people, the rich young ruler and blind Bartimaeus, to give us an illustration of adult human beings in the way that they interact with Jesus. We live most of our lives, especially here in Cary, wanting very much to be like the rich young ruler. He is like the poster child for success. He's got no, he's young, he's rich, he has power. He's religious. He goes to church. He does a lot. He does right things. He is exemplary in every way. We live our lives wanting to be like the rich young ruler, but Jesus wants to show us that we need to be a lot more like Bartimaeus. And in the middle of this passage, Jesus tells us that he himself is going to open the way, open the door to the kingdom of God for those who will relate to him like a little child, who will relate to him like Bartimaeus, and who will learn not to relate to him like the rich young ruler. It's a very challenging passage for me because I certainly, in my own natural state before grace got a hold of me, uh, wanted to be like the rich young ruler, as many of you, I'm sure, do or did as well. So so we're going to talk about the rich young ruler first, then we're going to talk about how Jesus opens the door, then we're going to talk about how Bartimaeus shows us the way of the kingdom. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord God, I pray that you would enable us to hear your word. Jesus, uh, sometimes it feels like you're a meteor when you preach and you just drop these these statements into our lives and we we just have to reckon with you and your understanding of grace and your kingdom in ways that make us feel uncomfortable. But God, I pray that you would. I pray that you would make us feel uncomfortable and you would disentangle our hearts from believing that we can somehow merit in our own works your favor I pray that you would free us from the idol of performance and achievement and underneath that idol, self-love. I pray that you would do that so that we would be able to enter into the joy that we find at the end of the passage in Bartimaeus. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, the rich young ruler rejects the way of the kingdom. So we find him starting out on the wrong foot with Jesus. Right off the bat, he asks the question, what can I do to obtain eternal life? So he's already kind of working from this standpoint of what can I add to my resume to also incorporate myself into you and your kingdom. He is so used to depending on his incredible abilities that he thinks that he can also secure the kingdom of God in the exact same way. So Jesus answers the rich young ruler's question by quoting five uh, of the Ten Commandments, the first five. And Jesus basically says, if you want to obtain eternal life, then you need to obey all of the Ten Commandments perfectly, and then you can enter the kingdom of God. And he says to Jesus, 
all of these things, all of the Ten Commandments, I have kept perfectly since I was a boy. J.C. Ryle commenting on this, he says, It's incredible to see the links that people will go to to be ignorant about themselves. It's incredible the links, the lies we will tell ourselves to, to, to make ourselves believe that we actually basically have lived up to these standards. But the ruler's problem is that he believed that he was the sum total of all of his positive accomplishments. He believed that his, his positive resume was so good that it made up for any kind of bad in his resume. He was depending on his good works to gain status with Jesus. Now, that may be disturbing to us as we, we read this in The Rich Young Ruler, but also for us, we might not say it out loud, but we often internally think, well, I have tried very hard today or this week or this year, God. I hope you understand that. And, and we have kind of these, uh, these work-dependent kind of conversations we have with God. It's like, God, I've tried real hard. I've been to church. I'm really trying to be a good parent, so please bless me. And we get into this type of works-oriented relationship with God as well. So we need to recognize, I believe the rich young ruler is here in the Bible for us to recognize that this man, he had far exceeded the righteousness and the wealth and the power at a young age, and he was religious. This guy had it all. He's there for us in scripture so that we will see a man, a human being, who if anybody could achieve the kingdom of God, achieve a relationship with God on his own merit, here's the guy. I don't think any of you, I mean, we have some world-class achievers at Trinity Park. Some of you, you're amazing. Like, what you've accomplished in your life is truly incredible. You're, you're top 1% of your class. You're, you're excelling in your field. You're, you're probably brilliant. Some of you are geniuses, but you're not the rich young ruler. I believe this man is there for us to show us that this guy had it all from a worldly perspective. And if anybody could have related to God in his own righteousness, then it was this man. But yet Jesus looks at him, and he's not impressed. He's totally unimpressed. Whereas the disciples are like, hey, Jesus doesn't have time for the infants. Jesus wants to go with the infants. And where the disciples are like, whoa, now here's somebody that Jesus needs to meet. Jesus is like, I'm not impressed. He has a totally different way of looking at who he wants to spend his time with. He's not impressed with the self-righteousness of the ruler. And we need to recognize, too, that he did not get to where he was by ignoring God. He was in church. He might have even been an officer in the church. This guy had religion, too. I mean, he was really working hard there and was doing a great job by worldly standards. This man is there to show us that he had it all, but Jesus was unimpressed with his resume. Why was Jesus unimpressed? Well, the rich young ruler loved himself more than he loved God. He loved his resume. He loved where it got him in life. He loved the opportunities that afforded him. He loved the respect that he garnered. He loved himself more than he loved God. And so Jesus, the great doctor, based on his diagnosis of this man's heart, writes him a prescription, and he says, sell all you have and give it to the poor. Now, why did Jesus target his money and his possessions? I mean, he had a lot of other things going on too. Well, the money and the possessions, they were like the, uh, the load-bearing wall of the rich young ruler's life. If you lose the money, 
you lose the possessions. Now you're getting at the real idolatry, which is self-love. What Jesus really wanted, he didn't need his money, that's, that's for sure. Um, he wanted this man's heart. And he knew that if you could remove the load-bearing structure of self-love through worldly possessions, then maybe this, this man, this young ruler, could come into his kingdom. Jesus' command was about money, but more than about that, it was about calling the rich young ruler to actually obey the first commandment. You shall love the Lord your God. The first commandment. He said, I've kept this since I was a boy. Jesus was saying, actually, no. No, you haven't. You love yourself more than you love me. So Jesus' command to the rich young ruler, it's important to, to know because people get hung up on this. This is not a universal command for everyone to give up all of their wealth and all of their possessions in order to enter the kingdom of God. That's not what this is. But we do need to grapple with the fact that you do need to give up your self-love, your love for yourself first in order to enter the kingdom of God. You must, you must turn away from yourself. You must recognize that that's a problem, that you love yourself more than you love God. And you must be willing to follow the Lord, to empty yourself, to repent of that self-love. Jesus is calling you and me to love God more than we love ourselves. And I think we're all delusional if we don't think that we in some way struggle with this idol of self-love. And so that's what Jesus is doing business with in this passage. You shall have no gods before me includes the idol of you. And Jesus wants your heart. He wants you to follow him. There's a famous hymn called Rock of Ages where one line says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And if you're going to simply cling to his cross, you can't be clinging to yourself. You can't be clinging to money, possessions, power, religious performance. You actually have to empty your hands in order to cling to simply the cross alone. And that is the call that Jesus gives to the rich young ruler, and he gives it to us. So the disciples see the way that Jesus is interacting with the rich young ruler, and they're like, this is impossible. How is it possible, Lord God, for this man or anyone to enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, what is impossible with man is impossible with God. It is possible for us to enter the kingdom of God as comparatively you know, rich people, at least some of us are. But in order to do that, a great work of grace has to occur in our hearts to free us from the idol of self-love so that we will let go of that and all that goes with it, all the strings attached, all the load-bearing walls, and say, Jesus, I need you and I need your grace. And so the rich young ruler is there to show us the way that the kingdom of God can be rejected. And he walks away sad. I want to note, and I'll, I'll bring it up again later, that when Jesus tells the rich young ruler this, it's not included in Luke, but it is included in the Mark account that when Jesus says this to the rich young ruler, it says that he looked at him and loved him. He loved him. It would have been unloving of Jesus to say, man, you know what? Keep going on in your way. Keep going on in your way. You're doing a great job. To not disrupt the apple cart would have been unloving, but for Jesus to disrupt this man, to meddle with the, the load-bearing wall is love. It is love because Jesus wants to show him and all of us a different way. So the second movement in this passage is that Jesus breaks open the way of the kingdom. And we find this 
Um, oh, where am I here? We find this in verses 31 through 34. So in Jesus, Jesus tells us there's a massive blessing in this life to come to those who will receive him through mercy and not through achievement. And so were it not for this section in the passage, in between the ruler and Bartimaeus, there would be no way to experience the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ breaks open the way of the kingdom. And how does he do it? First of all, he does it by providing for God the Father a perfect resume. A perfect resume. He is the one human being whose life resume, all of his performance, everything that he did, he did it perfectly. He did it well. He perfectly obeyed the Father. He was holy. None of us are. And in his perfect performance, he can go to the cross. He says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to go to the cross. And at the cross, he empties himself. Jesus embraces the brokenness of the cross. He, the perfect man, then does the perfect thing. He empties himself. He does not love himself. He does not love himself, and instead he empties himself, and he pours himself out on the cross, breaking open the way of heaven for us. He is the one who says, I'm not going to cling to my heavenly glory. I'm not going to cling to my, per my perfect achievement. I'm not going to cling to that as my identity. He had all wealth, all power, and he disrobes himself of all of that heavenly glory, and he takes on human flesh, and he lives perfectly, and then he goes and he pours himself out on the cross in, in a perfect display of brokenness and dependence on his father. He dies for your sins and my sins, the rich young ruler's sins, Bartimaeus' sins. He dies for the sins of his people, and then he is raised back up from the dead. And this is the way that Jesus opens the door for heaven. Whereas our achievements are utterly unimpressive to God, God the Father is impressed with what Jesus did. He's very impressed. He's consummately impressed with what Jesus has done, and therefore the gateway of salvation is open for all who will follow in the way of Jesus Christ. All who will say, he is the perfect man, his sacrifice was perfect, I need him to be my substitutionary atonement. That's a big theological word. But I need him to stand in my place, on my own, on my merits, even the rich young ruler, and whatever, in whatever way I am like him or not like him. I can't compare, I cannot be received in my own merit, but I can be received on the merit of Christ and what he has done for me on the cross. And that is why we let go of all of these other, these other idols in our lives and we embrace the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus achieves mercy from God in what we call the great exchange. Martin Luther came up with this term. In the great exchange, we receive Christ's righteousness, his perfection, his record, so that his resume is our resume. So that when God looks at us by grace, we receive this transfer of righteousness from God. So that God can look at us and be pleased with us, not because of what we've done, but because what has been given to us or imputed to us through Christ. What did Christ receive on the cross? Christ received from us in the great exchange our sin, our misery. He received our penalty for what we deserved for not following God. And in the great exchange, Jesus receives all of that from us, and we receive his righteousness, so that now if you do receive him like an infant, if you do receive him as we'll see modeled in blind Bartimaeus, you can not just receive his grace and his mercy, 
you can receive his righteousness. So that when Jesus looks at you, now he can see his own righteousness. He sees his righteousness and he accepts you because you have what he gave to you. But in order to embrace this, you have to wholeheartedly, as we went through the membership vows this morning, you have to wholeheartedly be able to say vow one. Yes, I believe I'm a sinner. I justly deserve God's displeasure. I am without hope, save or accept for in his sovereign mercy. You cannot cling to your righteousness. You cannot cling to your performance and on one hand say, Yes, I believe in Jesus, but I also am going to cling to this as a way to have an identity that is acceptable to God. No, we have to cling to Christ alone. We have to stop believing that the self that we actually are is our Facebook selves or our Instagram selves or our TikTok selves or our resume selves or that part of our self that gets it right, that really nails it at work, that really like the best self that we can put forward, that that's what God looks at and he's like, no. We have to begin to realize that ourself and who we are is actually all of us. It's those moments, yeah, those pictures are real on Instagram, sure, but what about all the other pictures you didn't put on there? Yeah, that moment you had at work is awesome, but what about all the other moments at home that you had that weren't that awesome? God sees all that. And we have to come to grips with that, as Claire said in his prayer, that God pierces through all that in the gospel, and we have to turn to Christ and his cross and receive his grace by mercy and receive his righteousness alone. When I was growing up, I loved baseball. Uh, it, was, it was one of my favorite sports. I played baseball all the time. And one of the greatest moments of my life is when I got old enough to where I needed to get an adult baseball glove. And I was really into baseball. I wanted to play in college, practice all the time. So my dad really invested in a, a high-end glove. It was, a, it was an expensive glove. I remember back in, this is like the mid-'80s, that glove cost over $200. And this thing was like precious to me. But, you know, the thing about a baseball glove is that when you get a new glove, it's totally useless. It's actually extremely disappointing. Until the glove is broken in, you take that thing, try to catch it, the ball just pops out. It's so frustrating. And so that's why you go to great lengths to break in a baseball glove. I mean, some people put it in the oven. Some people run over it with their car. I mean, you get oil out. You're constantly putting balls in there, trying to get the pocket just right. Because a baseball glove is useless unless it is broken in. And we in the kingdom of God are useless to God unless we are like that baseball glove. When we, when we come to God, we're like the rich and young ruler. We're shiny and new and useless. We can do nothing. The master tries to use us. He tries to put his grace in us, and it just pops right out. We don't need God's grace. We're fine without God's grace. But what God does for us by his grace is he massages the oil of his gospel into our hearts and he breaks us in and he makes us useful. In order to be useful in the kingdom of God, in order to enter the kingdom of God, you need to be broken. But in order to be useful in the kingdom of God, you need to be broken. In order for God to be able to use you like an instrument for his purpose, to be able to take you into situations where he can really use you, you need to be broken, molded into his hands so that he can be, you can be used by him. We need to be like a broken in baseball glove. God wants all of us in his kingdom to be broken in people. And Bartimaeus shows us the way. He shows us the model of an adult who got it, who got just how needy and how broken he was and how much he needed God's mercy. So Bartimaeus finally, in the final movement in this passage, he models the way 
of Jesus' kingdom. Let's look at Bartimaeus together. Now, it's extremely doubtful if you were to line up Bartimaeus with a bunch of other people, certainly the disciples, you know, would have said, if Jesus would have said, which one of these guys, which one of these adults do you think is a candidate for discipleship in my kingdom, he certainly would, have been, would not have been per, uh, picked first. He probably would have been picked last. I mean, this guy is not the one that you would have chosen to be one of your first disciples. In fact, the disciples, just like they rebuked the infants and the people bringing the infants, they rebuked Bartimaeus for coming near Jesus. He and these other followers of Jesus at the time were like, nah, Jesus is busy, man. This, is, this guy's really important. He didn't have time for you. And Jesus, again, he's like, man, I, I'm going to keep on teaching my disciples what I'm looking for, that I'm looking for broken, needy people who know they need my mercy. They are the candidates for discipleship in my kingdom. Bartimaeus is the perfect candidate. How so? First of all, Bartimaeus understands he has nothing to offer Jesus. Nothing. The only way that he's going to have a relationship with Jesus is by mercy. By mercy. He knows it. We see this in verse 35. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. He's got nothing. He's got nothing. He was blind, which meant in in that time, in that society, you didn't have any social services. There's no way you could have a job. His one way, his one path forward was to beg. I passed someone the other day in Durham begging on the side of the road. And, and I see, see this all the time uh, in Cary and other places as well, all over the place. And, you know, often I'm not filled with compassion, uh, and I, I'm not. Um, but in this particular occasion, I just looked at him and I thought, how does someone get uh, into this place? I wonder what his story is with Bartimaeus, there was no question what his story was. He was there because he was blind. And he had nothing to offer Jesus except for his broken self. You know, for those of you who are politically opposed to handouts for the poor, you better not be spiritually opposed to receiving handouts from Jesus because that's all you get. You've got nothing. You've got nothing to offer him except your broken self. Second of all, Bartimaeus cries out in a loud voice, have mercy on me, Jesus. We're talking about why he was a perfect candidate for discipleship. It says in verse 38, he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So is there any other greater way to demonstrate faith in God than crying out, out loud, audibly, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me? Jesus of Nazareth would have been the name that everybody called him, but somehow Bartimaeus also understood who Jesus was in a way that other people did not. Son of David is a messianic title, meaning God has sent this man. God has sent this man to set the world to rights, and I need to be set to rights. I'm broken. I need him. This is my chance. And so he gets Jesus' messianic identity somehow. And when other people did not understand who he was, he calls him by his messianic title Have you ever cried out audibly to God, Lord, have mercy on me? I mean, (laughs) I was talking with Olivia about this this morning. Uh, This type of audible breath prayer has become incredibly normal in our household, um, honestly. And I think it's one of those moments, like, all I got, God, all I got is, Lord, have mercy on me right now. And it could happen when uh, Olivia and I are having a disagreement. I may not say, Lord, have mercy out loud, because that could make it worse. But internally, I'm saying, Lord, have mercy on me. I need your help because everything in my flesh wants to say and do the wrong thing right now. Um, 
with our children, one time Olivia heard me say, Lord, have mercy from across the house. And she walked over and she's like, are you okay? And, I, you know, it was something with one of our kids. And I was struggling with patience. Uh, I was struggling with how do I, how do I uh, love my child in this moment? Lord, have mercy. Uh, when I, as a pastor, there are many things that I engage with, many moments, many situations, uh, many conflicts that there was no seminary class for and I have no training in. Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy should be and can be the most basic prayer and the most spiritual prayer that you could pray, depending on what's going on in your life. Maybe that's all you can say. I don't even know what I need, God, but I know I need your mercy. I encourage you to to pray that prayer as often as you can. Maybe even to start the day or to end the day. Lord, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus got that he needed God's mercy. Bartimaeus understood also that he needed Jesus to heal him. He needed Jesus to heal him. Verse 41, what do you want me to do for you? Interestingly, in a parallel passage in Mark, the the preceding character that's given to us is not the rich young ruler. The, The characters given to us are James and John. They're the ones who embody the foil to Bartimaeus in the Mark passage. And they were, here they are, they're the, the key disciples of Jesus, but they want power. They want power that comes not through identifying with Christ and lowering themselves and being broken and Christ raising them up. They just want power without the cross. And so Jesus rebukes them. And interestingly, with James and John, Jesus asks them the same question that he asked Bartimaeus in this passage, what do you want me to do for you? Their response, we want to sit on the thrones on your right and on your left. We want power. Bartimaeus' response, what do you want me to do for you, Jesus asks. I want you to heal my sight. I want to see. I want to see. It's a prayer of a broken man. I know what my real need is. I need to see. You see, being able to see in that time represented all of the social ostracization. He was cut off from community. He had no way to provide for himself. He needed to see. He may or may not have gotten the spiritual component of this. We're not exactly sure, but he did get at some level that he needed to see more than just physically. He needed Jesus. He wanted a relationship with Jesus. And so Jesus offers him physical healing and then also gives him spiritual healing. In healing his eyes, he also heals many other aspects of Bartimaeus's life as well. And then finally, why is he a great candidate for discipleship? After he receives mercy, he follows Jesus joyfully. You know, there's a parable where Jesus, or there's a moment in Jesus's ministry where he heals 10 lepers and only one come back to tell him thank you and to ask how they can serve him. Nine go away. I'm sure they were glad, but they didn't, their, their gladness wasn't matched with discipleship. And with Bartimaeus, his gladness and his joy means, what do we find at the end? He follows Jesus along the road. Where? He follows Jesus to Jerusalem. We know that he was there on Palm Sunday. Followed Jesus on the road. He was there on Palm Sunday, seeing in living color. That's the next thing that happens in the narrative. He gets to Jerusalem. He sees Jesus in living color, and he's worshiping there with all of his heart. Because he was a new man, not just for the weekend in Jerusalem, but for the rest of his life. So who are you more like, the rich young ruler or Bartimaeus? 
You know, sometimes if we think about the, the worst moments of our lives, the hardest moments of our lives, the moments where we've screwed it up the most, we think that's the moment where I am the most unacceptable to God. But actually, the closer you are to embracing your own brokenness, you need to recognize that in that moment where you recognize just how needy and how desperate you are, that's you. That's really you. You don't want to run from that part of your life, keeping on pushing it down under the surface of the water and it popping back up and you not knowing what to do with it. You just let that part, you, you let that part come to the surface and you give that to the Lord and you say, Lord, this is me. I am a broken and needy sinner. I'm a broken and needy person and I need you to heal me. Instead of walking through life by constantly living in light of our own accomplishments, bring those things to the surface in your life and say, these secret sins, as we talk about here in our confession, these, these moments of brokenness where you think that those moments make you the least likely candidate for Christ, those are the moments where Jesus is saying, I'm with you. I see you. I love you. I'm for you. I came for you there in that moment of your greatest need. I came for you. I want to heal you. There's a story John Wesley told uh, of a time when a wealthy business owner invited him to ride around with him and survey his land. And at the end of the trip, the landowner said to Wesley, so what do you think? And Wesley said, I think this is all going to be hard to leave behind. It's going to be hard to leave behind. Jesus calls us to lay down what we love the most, what you love the most. This is a similar theme to the last two sermons. This is just Jesus. I'm just following the, the course of Luke. Apparently, Jesus cares about your soul, and he doesn't want you to love anything else more than him. And so he's asking you, he's calling you to name, what do I love the most? Is it yourself? Is it something else that props up your love for yourself? For me in college, I idolized my future success. I was a growing rich young ruler. And I idolized my success, and as part of that, one of the pillars of that success was academic performance. And I achieved, I did well. Um, it meant a tremendous amount to me, to the point where, when I was a freshman in college, in my, my spring semester, I was taking chemistry, and um, I was doing well in the class. And on the final, I kind of freaked out, because there were several answers I didn't know, and I thought I was on the line between making an A and a B, and I just couldn't live with myself if I made a B. And so I cheated. I cheated. I looked at the paper next to me, got a couple of answers I didn't know. And I, who knows if that person was smart. But anyway, I made, I made an A on the, the final. I made an A in chemistry, and I kept my perfect GPA. Well, as I, I continued to follow the Lord, uh, the Lord began to show me my idol of success and what a problem that was and, like, all the different ways it was a problem and all the different areas of my life it was impacting, the way I treated people, my obsession with my own performance and achievement, and that I would do anything, even cheat, um, to, to make it look like I was successful. I became the president of an honor society at Auburn my junior and my sophomore year. And so that idol of success was kind of working for me. It was working pretty well. But the Holy Spirit, you know, God was unimpressed. <laughs> um, he was unimpressed. And the Holy Spirit kept on just working on me. Like, you need to lay this idol down. You need to depend on me and my mercy and not on your performance. And so I was super convicted. And I went to, I decided after like a year of praying about it, I went to my chemistry teacher my senior year. And I, I made an appointment with him. Of course, he had no idea who I was. I mean, these classes are gigantic at Auburn. Uh, he probably had 2,000 students since I was in 
that time. And so he literally, he was a, he's a man, he's probably 5'2". He had super long fingernails, and he kind of like would do this when he's talking to you. And um, I was sitting there talking to him. He's like, okay, Mr. Jackson, all right, I see your record. Great, you have a very good GPA, and you did well in my class. What can I do for you? I was like, I just want to let you know um, I'm a Christian. I'm trying to follow Christ, and I want to let you know I cheated on my final, my freshman year. And I just want to, you know, I'm at your mercy. I just wanted you to know about that. And there was this long, awkward pause, and he was like, my goodness, son, you've been carrying around this for three years? He's like, go on with your life. Enjoy your life. Don't give this another thought. Good luck. Best of luck to you. But, I mean, at that point, you know, I, I just had to lay that idol down. And, and by laying that idol down, it was a moment where I said to the Lord, I'm going to follow you, whatever the cost. I'm just going to follow you. The more important thing is I was laying down this alternate love that I had for being respected and being thought of as a rich young ruler. So how is God calling you to rely on his mercy today instead of your accomplishments in a practical, tangible way? So maybe he's calling you to repent to your spouse of something that you've said or done. And if repenting of that thing feels like a death to you, then you probably should do it because you probably love that thing more than you love following God. If he's calling you to give away, maybe you are wealthy and you love your money and where that gets you. Maybe it is just like the rich and ruler. It is a pillar in your life on which a lot of other things are set. And maybe God is calling you. I would be remiss to not add that maybe he really is calling you to give away a substantial amount of what you have. It would, be, it would totally be worth it if that giving away actually meddles with that idol of self-love in such a way that you would trust God and you would embrace him by faith and you would love him more than you love yourself. It would be totally worth it. There's no value on that. That's the most valuable thing in the world. Maybe he's calling you to stop trying to raise perfect children. Maybe your obsession with your kids turning out a certain way is driving you and your kids insane. And you need to lay that idol down. Yes, we should be about our kids and their development and their obedience, but maybe that obsession is misplaced and you need to trust the Lord with the future of your children. There are so many different ways that the Holy Spirit could be at work in your heart calling you to dismantle that idol of self-love and achievement. And the Lord is calling us to lay that down and to embrace his kingdom like Bartimaeus. Remember Jesus in Mark 10, 21 looked at the rich young ruler and he loved him. He calls you to do this out of sheer love for you because here's the God to honest truth. If you're an achiever, if you're a performer, then there's so many things that you're carrying around with you. There's such pressure, such an intensity. There's such a denial of some reality that's actually, it's actually making your life sick. And in order, and as you unpack that with the Lord as you trust him as he makes you whole again you can actually be filled with a the mercy of God but also the freedom and the joy of God in a way that you may have never experienced before one week later Jesus would reach Jerusalem where he would give everything up for you and for me he would open the door for heaven at the cross so you can't embrace the cross and hold on to all of your achievements. You have to embrace the cross like Jesus did by giving up everything and finding him alone.
I would encourage you, you don't have to walk away sad today like the rich young ruler was when he walked away from Jesus because it meant he felt like he had to give up all of his possessions and it just wasn't worth it. You can walk away glad like Bartimaeus, knowing that Jesus can heal you and, and will heal you if you call out to him for mercy. He will continue to heal you and make you into that person he created you to be, and you can follow him on the road with joy. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that at the end of the story, we see a man, that you give us the picture of this man, Bartimaeus, who was healed and who was joyful and who was following you on the road of discipleship. And I pray that we would embrace your kingdom like that little child. Lord, that we would let go of everything that could hinder us from from entering into your kingdom. God, I pray that as you work in our hearts this morning, Lord, if there's anything that we're holding back from you, anything we're struggling to trust you with, and God, I know that there there is in, in each and every one of our lives, there's something that we are clinging to but we're having a difficult time trusting you. So God, I pray that you would enable us to do that, knowing that you love us, knowing that your plans for us are good, knowing that if we trust you, God, then you will, um, as it says in the passage, that, that there are so many blessings that are available to us in the kingdom of God, both in this life and in the life to come, when we will take our hands off of our possessions, off of our relationships, off of all these other things, open them up and trust you to give us what we need. There's so much freedom. I pray that we would find it through the power of the Holy Spirit as you work in us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.